Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. I wonder whether you've ever been reading through the Bible and thought to yourself, this is a bit repetitive, isn't it? This is a bit unoriginal. This is a bit formulaic. Have you ever opened up God's Word and thought about one particular author or another that they're indulging in plagiarism, that they're copying the stories, the images, the ideas of other people in the Scriptures, and maybe you've come to the conclusion that means that they're lazy, incapable, or something worse. That you go to the Bible and there are just certain things which keep on happening. Storylines. There are certain places where events keep on happening. There are certain names and uh, times of the year, and they're just on repeat, on loop, all of the time. And you could get the impression, couldn't you, that, that it is. It's unoriginal. That there are elements of a good story in there that just keep on being rehashed. Could you imagine if you were watching a TV series, and that's what it was like, where it was just the same idea, the same things happening over and over and over again? You probably wouldn't give it a very good review. I want to suggest to you this morning that when we come to the Bible, and when we read of certain things happening over and over and over again, it isn't because there's laziness, it isn't because there's incapability or plagiarism going on, but it's something else, something far more wonderful and important for us. And to give you an example of this, I want us to think of road signs this morning. So, out of interest, does anybody know, in general, what that road sign means? So, normally it would have something in the middle, but what is it? Hang on, one at a time. There was one in this zone. Okay, so it would be a speed limit sign. So you'd expect to have a number in there, and it would be telling you what? That you're not allowed to go above that limit. So red circles with white on the inside, they are limiting signs. They tell you um, not to go further than what it says. Okay, how about this? Very similar, but now it's a triangle with a red border. Does anybody know what that is? Julia, that's correct. It is a warning sign. So instead of saying you can't do blank, these are signs which tell you, hey, prick your eyes up, your senses, get on it. Something is about to appear or something is about to happen that you need to know about. They're warning signs. Be aware of blank. Now then, <clears throat> do we come to our roads and our road signs and think to ourselves, there's an original. There's uninspired. There's lazy, isn't it? That every time they want to put a sign up telling us not to do a certain thing, they just use that same red border on a, or a white circle. Every time they want to warn us of something, they just tr- trot out the same old triangle with a red border and they just chuck a picture in the middle of it. Do we think that? No, of course, well, if you do, then that's slightly odd. But there's purpose, isn't there? There's intention. It's not plagiarism. 
It's been thought through, and it's intentional in, in the sense that the signs are there to shape the way that we think and to impact how we react in certain situations. And that genuinely does happen. So for everybody who can drive, there will have been a point when we've had to learn our highway code. We'll have gone through the list of different signs. We probably will, like verbatim, have learned what particular signs mean, warning, limits, hazards, information, those sorts of things. But for the vast majority of us who have been driving for any sort of time, we'd find it difficult to articulate what those signs are, but we would instantly respond to them. Nobody, I hope, Commander should drivers are special, but nobody here would see a sign like the round circular one with a 30 in the middle of it and wonder to themselves, now I wonder, what 30 what? Minimum speed limit 30? 30 cars at a time? Over 30s only? No, none of us would think that. The repetition of seeing these signs over and over again has shaped our thinking and it's affected us to such a degree that even perhaps when we don't notice and pay attention to the sign, we know, we, we process it, we register it, we go through the kind of almost unconscious thinking, ah, the speed limit has changed, the speed limit is now 30. Do you see those signs with their repetition, the way that we see them over and over again, that there's consistency, helps us to interact and to process and respond to the world around us. And that, in part, is like why we find so many of the same ideas, the same stories, the same images, the same language as we make our way through the Bible. That God has intentionally shaped the Scriptures... So that if we take our time to read through them and to read through them and to read through them and to just keep on going, that they shape our minds. That they, if you like, teach us to see and observe and to respond to the world in the right way. Especially in the context of, if you were alive in the first century AD, having been brought up on the Jewish Old Testament, that when Jesus arrived, he would make perfect sense. You know, Jesus was amazed in one sense when he was traveling with two of his disciples that they hadn't seen him and been shaped by the scriptures to such an extent that they understood straight away who he was, what he was doing, and what it all meant. Part of why the Bible is the way it is, part of why we see the same stories the same ideas, the same pictures in the language, is it's supposed to shape us, shape our minds and our thinking so that we encounter and respond to the world in a particular way. And whether you notice it or not, we've been visiting some of these repeated things the last couple of weeks. John mentioned it a few times, both sermons, but there was the crossing of the Red Sea, the going through water. Now, going through water wasn't one event that happened once in Scripture. Actually, by the end of that particular journey that the people were on out of Egypt, they had to cross another load of water in order to go into the promised land. There are other pictures and images of people going through water, um, prophecies about passing through water. Paul picks up on that picture in order to explain to people exactly what baptism is all about. The idea is that it's repeated, and it's not repeated out of laziness because they couldn't come up with something else, 
because it's supposed to shape the way that we think, that whenever we encounter water of any kind, all this information piles in. We know something about what's going on. Last week, John was speaking about um, the people surrounding the mountain, Moses going up the mountain, the covenant, the marriage between God and his people. But there are so many occasions in Scripture where people encounter God at the tops of mountains. It's like ridiculous. Even in places we don't expect it or don't particularly realize it. Did you know that Ezekiel speaks about the Garden of Eden as if it were on top of a mountain? At the very start of the Bible, that is where God and mankind dwell together. And it's not laziness. Oh, we've got this character, Jesus, and he's important, and we want to um, speak about him. Well, what should should happen in his life? We'll send him up a mountain with a couple of his followers. That'll kind of fill a couple of chapters. The transfiguration, we looked at it in Mark. No, it's supposed to help us and, and, and shape our minds so that when that happens, we recognize something significant is happening. And um, a part of what needs to be said this morning then, like in light of that, in the context of that, comes from Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 speaks about the blessed person, and one of the hallmarks of that blessed person is someone who meditates on the Scriptures day and night. The, The whole point and the purpose of the Old Testament especially, but including the New Testament, it's not something that we kind of like dip in and out of. It's not something like a one-hit wonder we go to and we never return to, but this is supposed to be in our minds, shaping us, molding us, changing us. I would certainly go as far as to say, unless we have really spent time in the Old Testament, unless we've spent time meditating on it day and night, we won't get half of what's going on with Jesus in the New Testament. As we walk through the Gospels, you know, as we did through Mark's Gospel, that should have been pretty clear, shouldn't it? That when he calls himself certain things, when he does certain things, that unless our mind has been shaped by the Scriptures, it'll just be random noise to us. And we are again today going to be looking at one of those pictures, one of those images that keep on reoccurring in Scripture. And it's the image, it's the idea of being on holiday. Well, I mean, John kind of hinted at it as well with the kids. Being on holiday is a really crude way of putting it, but I'm not sure I could describe in a kiddie sort of way how to go into exile. Um, Hang on, where am I? Here we are. There you are. We're going to be looking at the idea of exile, of being away from home, of being in a foreign land. And for some of you, instantly, you'll be taken to certain books and to certain characters in the Old Testament, won't you? You'll know, generally speaking, ah, the exile was a specific period in Israel's history. But I want you to pump the brakes for the second and just think about this as a recurring theme, a recurring picture in um, Scripture is actually one of the earliest stories we encounter. Everyone knows where Adam and Eve are in chapter 2, right? Hands up, anybody? Where Adam and Eve, chapter 2? Garden of Eden. Not all questions are difficult, okay? Yeah, Garden of Eden. It's simple. They're there. And in Genesis chapter 2, we read that God placed them in the garden. That's That's their home. That's where they're supposed to be. But by the end of chapter 3, we read about God driving them out, kicking them out, a cherubim with swords guarding the Garden of Eden so that they can't go back there. The very start of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, are the story of 
exile, of humanity being away from home, being forced into a foreign land. If you were reading through the book of Genesis, you might get this sense as you finish the book as well. The book finishes with uh, Jacob or Israel and his children, especially Joseph, not in the land that was promised to Abraham, not in the land that they had inhabited for a time, but where? Egypt. Luke's going to get a gold star. In fact, you're going to get some sweeties by the end of this. Exactly. They're somewhere else. They're away from home. They're in a foreign land. It starts and it finishes with exile. Now, fast forward, it is one of the stories that dominates all of the Old Testament, either prophets coming and warning that's going to happen, or prophets and characters living through it, or even prophets and other people kind of on the back end of it when it's over at the end of the 70 years. But there is the exile of the north and the south, of the whole nation of Israel, of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It happens at two different points. The northern kingdom taken off by Assyria, uh, the southern kingdom taken off by Babylon a little bit later. But it is God's people plucked from their homes and sent away to a foreign land. Like John said, not on holidays, not through choice, not in a fun sort of way, but forcibly removed. They are in exile. I'm just going to quickly read to you the end of two Chronicles. Uh, Chronicles, book in which we read about all the kings from David onwards and what have you. And this is how it concludes. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And in the spring, Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon, along with the valuable articles of the Lord's temple. Then he made Jehoiakim's brother, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old, and when he became king, and he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, did not humble himself before the prophet Jeremiah at the Lord's command. He rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God, and he became obstinate and hardened his heart against returning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the leaders of the priests and all the people, they multiplied their faith, unfaithful deeds, imitating all the detestable practices of the nations, and they defiled the Lord's temple that he had consecrated them. So this is what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Chaldeans, killed their fit young men with a sword in the house of the sanctuary. He had no pity on the young men or the young women, the elderly or the aged. He handed them all over. He took everything to Babylon. All the articles of God's temples, large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple, the treasure of the king and his officials. Then they burned God's temple. They tore down Jerusalem's wall, all his palaces, and destroyed all that was valuable. He deported those who escaped the sword to Babylon, and they became servants to him and his sons until the rise of the next empire, the Persian kingdom. That's what happened. They were, like, for the lucky ones, I guess, plucked from their homes and led away to go and work and to worship in a foreign land. One of the names that perhaps would come to mind would be the name of Daniel and his friends. And I'll quickly read to you that as well. These are people who lived through that. Okay, you open up to Daniel chapter 1, and this is what you read. Some familiar names will come in. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. This is the same thing that's happening. 
The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his gods, and put the vessels in the treasury of God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking men, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the Babylonian language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend to the king. That king is Nebuchadnezzar, the one who's come in, killed loads of people, destroyed everything, and then torn them away from their homes. Among them, from the Judites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them Babylonian names, Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. You see, these are four famous people who live through being away from home, being in a foreign land. And you, you start, you reading through your Bible, and you think, well, why does this keep happening over and over again? The start, in the middle, towards the end, are they being lazy? No. They're helping us to see something true so that when the next character who lives through Israel, um, exile comes along, it starts to make sense of us. Now, in the New Testament, there is a particular exile by the name of Jesus. And I wonder whether you've ever thought of Jesus as someone who lived his life in exile. Probably, you know the story from the start of his life. Herod is going to kill all the young boys two and under. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they flee to Egypt. So he literally went to live in exile. More than that, he spoke about himself in this way later on. He said, the birds may have nests, the foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man, i.e. Jesus, has nowhere to lay his head. He was homeless. We, we recognize that a lot when we think about the, the life of Jesus, that he didn't have a home even when he was back in Israel. But there's a deeper sense in which Jesus lived as an exile. And it's the sense in which his home is somewhere else. Jesus said, I and the Father am one. And we could immediately ask the question, well, why aren't you together then? Why aren't you with the Father? We read, don't we, that Jesus is the one who left his heavenly home to come and live here with us. One of his names was Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was away from heaven, away from his place of authority and power and majesty, away from that eternal relationship that he'd had with the Father. He was living away from home. He was living through exile. Now, I think it's important to ask the question, why these exiles happened? What was the impetus behind them? What was the, the reason that we can come to as we think about what caused people not to be in their homes? Well, the first one is pretty obvious. It's judgment, isn't it? If you go back all the way to Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, we know what happens. It's the fall, isn't it? It's disobedience. It's the rebellion. 
when they decide that they're not going to follow God's way, but they're going to try and live life on their own. And it's a judgment that means that they're forced from their homes. You probably picked it up in that two Chronicles reading with the, like the big, the 70-year exile when all of Israel is deported, when all of Judea is deported. It's not just because Nebuchadnezzar is a big, bad, nasty, powerful ruler. It's judgment. It's because the people had for generations and generations turned their back on God. He said, if a judgment that you are going to be removed from your land, from your home, and you're going to live away, you're going to live in exile. But there is absolutely no hint that that is why Jesus came to the earth. Jesus wasn't driven out of heaven for any wrongdoing, was he? Jesus said he wasn't sent, he came to earth. And there is a sense in which, actually, the same rebellion which caused judgment to come on the other exiles is the same rebellion that underlines why Jesus came and lived amongst us in a foreign land. Jesus came for rescue. One of the things that Jesus said was this, I am the way. I am the way. I wonder how many times we've heard that, usually in the fuller sentence, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Have you asked the question, what do you mean the way? The way where? The way to what? I think perhaps part of the answer to that is, he is the way home. He is the way back. He is the way that we can get to where we're supposed to be. Jesus came to fetch us home. That's what he says, isn't it? In, in different ways and in different places, I am the way. I have come from a, uh, my home to, to your home to a foreign place so that I can rescue you and bring you back. So are we in exile? Are we in exile? Because for a lot of us, perhaps, where we live now feels like home. It does not feel like we're in the wrong place. If you read through the book of Daniel, if you read through uh, prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah who were speaking during the exile, they were sad about it. There, was, there were tears. There was great lament. They were filled with sorrow about the fact that they weren't where they were supposed to be. Most of us, most of the time, don't feel like that where we are now. There are times when we lose people, when we realize that this world, this world is not where we're supposed to be. The answer is yes, we are in exile. Peter, the author to the Hebrews, they speak about it. Peter describes Christians especially as aliens and strangers, sojourners, foreigners in the world that we live in at the moment. At the end of the letter to the Hebrews, the author speaks about Christians being people who are in a city, but not a permanent city. They're people who are longing and yearning for their true home. So we are living in exile. 
And so the next question comes, well, how do we live while we are in exile? Do we look at stories like the story of Daniel, and do we try and match up our lives with that? Or do we think, well, they were there because of judgment, and we're perhaps in exile for another reason. Um, So what does that look like? I, I should say as well that there is discontinuity between us and Daniel, that we don't live where we live now as judgment from God. There's, there's a further reason, which we'll come to in a second. How do we live? Amazingly, both Daniel responding to how Jeremiah instructs the people to live and how Jesus lived and instructed people to live match up perfectly. And it can be summed up basically in Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Mark, to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to give to God what belongs to God. Do you remember when we went through that in Mark? To pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but to pay to God what belongs to God. And it's this tension of living in exile, of submission and loyalty to the authorities and the powers and the place where you are, and subversion and standing up when those powers and authorities and places tell you to cross a line that you cannot as a follower of God. That's what Jesus is saying. Is, look, you live under Caesar. You have all the benefits of Caesar. You use money with Caesar's head on it. So if he asks you for a tax, pay away. But if he asks you to worship him, to call him Lord, to call him Savior, to call him God, then you cannot do that. The exact same thing was um, experienced in the book of Daniel. There are two special stories in the book of Daniel, aren't there? Famous story. First of all, his three friends, when they're thrown into the fiery furnace, and then later on, Daniel, when he's thrown into the lion's den. What, What were the occasions for those special events? Well, the occasion for the three friends was that they were instructed to bow down every time they heard a trumpet and worship this golden statue that had been built. Now, let's be clear. They were living their lives as good, in fact, excellent civil servants. They did everything in their kind of working power to benefit King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, the, um, the empire as a whole. They were, they were good boys. They went through the training, and they did their jobs well. They were well regarded and well thought of in that perspective. They were loyal. They were submissive. They did what they could for the greater good, if you like. But when that moment came where they were instructed, worship a false god, an idol, a statue, they said, you know what? This is a line we're not going to cross. And what happened to them? They were thrown into a fiery furnace. It cost them their lives. Only, if you know the story, it didn't. God was with them. God protected them. God saw them through the fire. And we read Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, kind of the fruit of living like that, loyal and yet subversive, standing up when they needed to. King Nebuchadnezzar, the same nasty bad man who's taken everybody away from their home and has given out the instruction in the first place to bow down and to worship this idol, he said this, to every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, This is quite a wide-reaching decree, isn't it? May your prosperity increase. 
I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders of the Most High God. How great are his miracles, how mighty his works. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. It's hard to fathom, actually, how such a wonderful declaration is made so far and wide by such a man as Nebuchadnezzar. But Hugh, if you just want like cherry pick a couple of ideas from this morning to take away and run with, is an amazing example of God takes ugly things and makes beautiful things out of them. It takes life in Babylon with all that that meant, all the injustice that that meant, all the idol worship, all the worship of Nebuchadnezzar. And in the midst of that, God works it so that this declaration goes out to every people, every nation, and every language who lives on the whole earth. Somehow, in exile, through living loyally, but also living um, subversively, standing up, not crossing the line, Daniel's three friends are able to get the goodness, the majesty, the greatness of God onto an international platform that had never been experienced before. That's amazing, isn't it? Then later on, Daniel... He's not told to worship something false. He's told not to worship the true God. Do you see what I mean? He's um, part of this plot, this plan, um, where nobody is allowed for a month to bring any requests before anybody other than the king. But Daniel keeps on praying. Daniel keeps on praying regularly every single day. He doesn't care who knows it, who sees it. No one, this is Daniel's line, is going to stop me coming to my Lord, my God. And so he gets thrown into a lion's den. They seal the lion's den up. The idea is that he's going to be eaten alive by these lions. It costs him his life to live like this. Only, if you know the story, that doesn't happen. And in Daniel chapter 6, we read from the next king along the the exact same sort of declaration. King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation, and language who lived on the whole earth, may your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal domain, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. He is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His dominion has no end. He is a rescuer and a deliverer, a performer of signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth, and he has rescued Daniel from the power of lions. So you've got Daniel and his mates away from home, not where they're supposed to be. They're there because of judgment, and Jeremiah has passed on to them the word of God, which is, live for the good of the city, but do not compromise. And they do that And these wonderful declarations come out of it. You've got Jesus who comes and he lives and he teaches people to pay to Caesar what is to Caesar's. But when you're told to cross that line, don't do it. You know, render unto God what is God's. And it'll be costly. It cost Jesus his life. Only we know that it didn't, did it? Because he rose to life again. God makes beautiful things out of living this way, doesn't he? When we read the stories of the exile, when we read how they're supposed to live, when we encounter Jesus as the one who is coming to rescue us from this foreign land and take us home, when he teaches us how we're supposed to live good lives, profitable lives for us and for those around us to a point at which we do not cross, 
God will make beautiful things out of that. So why, why are we still here? Quickly, why are we still here? Why haven't we been taken home? Why is this not the place Jesus said he's, come to, he's the way he's come to take us to the Father? Why aren't we there yet? I mean, really short, simple answer, because he's called us to carry on doing the thing that he was doing. He's called us to fetch other people and to show them the way, to bring them with us to our homes. So let me just close up then by offering you a couple of things. Firstly, if you are not a believer, if you are not a Christian, if you are not someone who has recognized the fact that you are not in a place where you're supposed to be, can I invite you to look at Jesus, to look at his life, to look at the things that he says about our lives and the world we live in, to wake up to the fact that this place isn't our home, that we're supposed to be somewhere else. Now, it's a bit mind-bending that somewhere else is supposed to be a life with God. But you are not at home. How do you get home? Simply this way, by trusting in and following Jesus. He is the way. He stepped in. He lived in exile, not out of judgment for him, but because of judgment for us to rescue us and to bring us back into that place, to welcome us back into Eden, to take us home, to make it so that we can be with God our Father forever. Feel uncomfortable and turn to Jesus to find the root home. If you are a Christian and you are, if you like, like a Daniel, I dare I say it even, like a Jesus, and you know you're not where you're supposed to be, and you're desperately, you're sorrowful for the world that you live in, you yearn, your heart's desire is to go home, the end of Daniel, he's, he's praying, he's begging God. You said 70 years, when will we ever, that 70 years like ever come to an end? Have that. But can I just offer you three tips, three things that as we go through, when we read these report, repeated stories, we're supposed to get, and we're supposed to just by nature and, and just the shaping of our minds respond. Firstly is this, don't get comfy. That is like a, a real option. It was an option for Daniel and his mates. That they could have gone to Babylon. They were given this wonderful opportunity now to be trained in Babylonian ways, to be given jobs and authority. And they could have just fully assimilated. They could have just gone, do you know what? This is where the Lord has put us, so all in. They could have just become like everybody else, part of the culture, part of the society, but they didn't. And if you read Daniel chapter 1, they don't immediately. They, they, they make this intentional choice not to eat the same food and to drink the same things. They make uh, um, a kind of like a moral stand. And so one of the things that we're supposed to see and to feel and to respond with as we look at exile in the Bible and we feel it in our own lives is we're not supposed to get too comfy where we are. We're not supposed to say, do you know what? This is it. We have made it. We're not supposed to get comfy. Jesus never tells us to get comfy. In fact, he tells us quite the opposite, doesn't he? The second piece of advice, or the second thing that we'll kind of naturally respond is actually not to get too aggressive. This is, if you like, the choice that we sometimes think people like Daniel or people like us living in a, a culture, the UK, it's going down the drain, isn't it? Oh, what a world we live in. All these things that are happening is getting worse and worse and worse. So we've got to make a choice. 
We're either going to go along with it, which we wouldn't, or we're going to kick up a fuss and we're going to make a fuss about everything and we're going to be the nastiest, most horrible people we can in our society. Daniel could have started throwing grenades, couldn't he? Could have worked his way to the top so that he could get close to Nebuchadnezzar. He has lots of meetings with him so that he could stab him and overthrow this evil king. He doesn't. Jeremiah, God tells him through Jeremiah, don't do that. Jesus tells us not to do that. He says, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. Paul, when he's writing to the church, and they're asking questions of how they respond to authority. It's not like good, biblical, God-honoring authority. It's the Roman emperors. It's the people who in a couple of years will be slaughtering Christians for their faith. He says, pray for them. Pray for those who are persecuting you. Live good lives. Make it so that your lives will be free from strife. Don't get aggressive. Don't start lobbing grenades. Actually, the third way we're supposed to live is the way of the exiles, the way that Jesus explained, the way that we see Daniel living. It's to get stuck in. It's do get stuck in. It is where we can and where we should loving the world that we live in. It's not our home, although there's a sense in which it will be our home forever. The Bible's pretty clear that we don't disappear off into some spiritual land for eternity, but that our hope is that God will remake our world, and this is where we will live. But the Bible is full of instructions for us to get stuck in, to do our absolute utmost for the prosperity of where we live, for the prosperity of those people around us, for the prosperity even for those leaders who are above us who we think stink to live like that, to pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and yet, and yet, to refuse to cross the line, to refuse to go where God tells us not to go. Do you remember for Daniel and his friends, there was the the twin things, You lot, you three, you must worship this false idol. We can't do that. Daniel, you must stop worshiping your true God. We can't do that. Um, In Jesus' life, it was to bow the knee to Caesar or come in line with the the priests um, and the scribes and the teachers of the law and all that. And Jesus says, we can't do that. And there's two things that come out of that. When we live, not getting comfy, not getting aggressive, getting stuck in, but also standing out. Number one, it may cost us our lives. Pretty much every example in the Bible we have of people truly living like that, it costs them their lives. Daniel's three friends, thrown into the fire. God rescues them. Daniel, thrown into the lion's den. God rescues him. Jesus, nailed to a cross. God rescues him. Who knows what for us? It might cost us our lives. It won't be easy. It will be hard at times and at points. But God makes wonderful things out of those, doesn't he? He takes that what is ugly and he makes something beautiful. In Daniel's stories, it's two amazing declarations that filled all of the new known world about how great and wonderful God is. Uh, With Jesus, it's the same declaration and more. It's power for forgiveness and redemption and restoration and being fetched home to the place where we're supposed to be. And who knows, even as we live like exiles, loving, living, 
serving, but standing up. God can, God will do wonderful, amazing things through us. He will use us and our loyalty and subversiveness to declare to others and to fetch other people home. And that is a wonderful opportunity. Now I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing to close. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the stories that are repeated in your word that help shape us, help mold our thinking, that when we encounter things in Jesus and when we encounter things in our old, own lives, Lord, that they are there to help us to see what the truth is, what the real way to react and to respond is. Lord, as we kind of sense that confirmation that we are not home, that the world we live in now is a foreign place, is not the final destination for us. Lord, help us to live as we see others commended to live in the scripture. Help us to be people who don't assimilate and get too comfy. Help us to be people who aren't constantly on the warpath. Help us to be people who genuinely love where you have put us. But Lord, give us the spine, give us the courage, give us the conviction to stand up for you and your gospel, for your son, for everything that is true in you and by him. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we face opposition for that. When we face opposition for drawing a line in the sand and not being willing to cross it. But Lord, we pray as well that as we make those stands, that we would see something of the fruit, the glorious fruit that comes from it, of you taking ugly situations and making them beautiful, helping other people to see that they are lost that they are away from home, that there is a way back through Jesus, that his name and his glory and his fame would go out in a way that, like we see in Daniel through those two kings, Lord. Be with us, help us, equip us, strengthen us by your spirit, Lord, and do wonderful things in us and through us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church make sure to like us on Facebook and lastly check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts Thanks for listening.